This is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. Today is February 28th. Welcome to the show. My name is Braden Dennis, as always, brought to you with the famous Simon Belanger. I say famous because, oh baby, this pod is on a growth train right now that cannot stop. It, it, the train has left the station and we are uh, we're going to the moon thanks to the listeners of the show. So we appreciate you very much. Simon, um, speaking of growth of the show, it is February 28th, meaning that if you haven't been on jointci.com, uh, our portfolio updates will be live tomorrow. So uh, if you're listening to this, they're now available at jointci.com. Yeah, yeah, no, it's always, it's kind of fun to look back at the month, honestly, I enjoy the exercise, I always do it a couple of days in advance, and then look at the the actual figures for the returns uh, the day before, um, yeah, it's fun just because you kind of take a look back, and you have to also explain the reasoning, which I enjoy, um, and, you know, it ensures that when we do make moves, there's some sound logic behind it, uh, might not always be the right move, but at least there's some good logic behind it. That's right. Yeah. And that's the, it's a good point too, right? It's like the decision you make in the short term, if you sell a stock, it's a sure, it's a sure thing that it goes up after, right? So that's like the laws of, that's the laws of the universe. Uh, we don't make the rules. We just, we just live in the laws of the universe. And, uh, you and I both sold something this month, which there might not ever be a uh, history of jointci.com Patreon where we both sold a stock in the same month. Today we're talking news earnings. It is a Thursday release. You're going to talk about a cyber attack on a Canadian company here. I'm going to talk about the Lumine spinoff from Constellation Software. And then we rip off the Band-Aid with uh, your update on Teladoc. And then I'll get into to Autodesk and, and, you know, a couple more news items. Let's get into it. First up, what do you got for us? Yeah, so you referenced it. So the Indigo website, their official website was under attack. Now it's been, it may sound like older news, but we hadn't had the chance to touch on it. It was in the middle of earnings season. And uh, so on February 8th, Indigo Chapters was hit by a ransomware attack. Since then, their online site and app have been unavailable for customers. And as you were talking, I just double check and it's at, at least still the case for their online site. They do have one online, but it's a temporary website with a limited selection of books that can actually be purchased and originally they put it online for people who wanted to browse and then go in the store to actually buy the book not great um like I said, still down. And there's a few angle here. I won't do a huge segment on this. But first, when you look at businesses that you want to invest in, for sure, like cybersecurity is not something that companies can cut out. And I, I mean, you talked about that. Uh, we're seeing companies trying to cut costs, uh, improve their margins because either revenues are slowing down or expenses as a whole are going up. So something's got to give if they want to keep their level of product uh, of profitability. So that's something that they will probably not be cutting. Uh, the second part here, it's been you know close to three weeks since it happened and hasn't been resolved. There's no doubt that this will impact their current quarter result and could have a longer lasting impact by damaging their reputation with their customers. And the last one is a bit different, not an investment perspective, more from a personal finance perspective. So, you know, as a consumer, it's important to always be aware of what's going on, especially with your credit. So they did say that their consumer data had not been compromised. Uh, however, I think they said some employee data may have been. Uh, but there's countless examples of the consumer data being stolen. And that's why it's important to keep an eye on your credit because you can actually spot any weird transaction. So that'll be a sign. I don't know about you, but I've, I have friends, a friend in particular, where they tried to buy a house. I think it was like seven, eight years 
years ago. They eventually bought it, but it was a mess because um, her husband actually got his identity stolen. So it was a whole mess to actually get sorted out because there was a bunch of loans against his name and oh they weren't him. He, and he, yeah, didn't, exactly. he didn't know until he went to go buy a house? Yeah, exactly, because the bank was oh, like, that uh, is a nightmare, yeah. dude. That is yeah, a nightmare. That's kind of the nightmare scenario. I'm not saying that will happen, but um, in order to do that, there's a ton of option. Equifax obviously uh, has some products where you pay for it. There's also free options like uh, Credit Karma where, you know, it's free, but what they'll do is they'll try to uh, promote some products that would be a good fit for you, like a credit card or stuff like that. So that's kind of the trade-off here. Um, so something to keep in mind, I personally always keep an eye on my credit. I go usually like once a month uh, ever since I heard that story. So it's just a little step to do and uh, just gives me peace of mind. There are lots of soft credit check things that, that are not going to affect your credit, I know. Um, my bank on the app, you can check on it and get us, you don't have, that's not going to hit your credit score by checking your credit, uh, your credit score. Um, by the way, if you need an official credit score, um, on the same business model as a, a credit karma is Borrowell and they're a Canadian company. Uh, yeah. th- they should sponsor the podcast, dude. Like one second while I send them this clip while they get some free promotion here, Borrowell is, is actually really dope. They offer, yeah, they're like, hey, this is a good option for you based on your credit, like, you know, some credit card. That's how they make money. But if you need a credit check, like, say, lots of things, you know, new house, new rental application, uh, Borowell's dope. I just recently used it. and uh, Yeah, credit karma is the same. You can see your credit score. Same thing? Too. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, same kind of thing, so. But they Canadian, we'll support, though, that's the question. We'll support the Canadian option. Yeah. No, credit <laughs> karma is into it. So, oh, yeah, it's uh, into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's exactly. into it. Yeah, they're actually getting a lot of flack because uh, they are saying, you know, they have these crazy growth rates for Credit Karma. And I think those were issued a few years ago or some time ago. And now kind of, you know, the economic outlook has kind of changed in debt as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting because they're not really adjusting the growth trajectory for that. But that's a side note. Yeah. Intuit is a... Uh it deserves a, a formal deep dive on this podcast. I feel like uh, has a lot of tentacles. <laughs> it has lots of tentacles and some really good businesses. I mean, QuickBooks is such a good business. Um, but hey, Borowell, come sponsor the pod. Um, I'm w- with open arms. Come sponsor the pod. Let's talk about Lumine. Lumine is a operating group of Constellation software. I've gotten so many questions. My Twitter inbox is should just be renamed what's happening with Lumine spinoff or Lumen, Lumine, I don't even know. And it is a operating group within an operating group of Constellation Software. <laughs> is that the most Constellation Software thing you've ever heard? It's a group within a group within a group. We have now confirmation that Lumen, Lumine Group shares will now trade on the TSX Venture under ticker LMN on March 24th. That is the date that I have. Um, basically, what is happening here is they bought a company called Wide Orbit, which is a vertical market software company in the ad technology space. And they're merging it with, through this acquisition, with Lumine. And so this is now the second publicly traded spinoff for Constellation Software, the first one being Topicus, uh, here's the deal. You're going to get three shares for every Constellation share owned. Uh, and I believe that cutoff date was like a week ago. So sorry. But to pull off this purchase they of Wide Orbit, they basically did this spinoff. And so they, they pull off this acquisition. There's value creation here being unlocked, uh, given Topicus has always traded at a premium from Constellation, and they have fairly similar organic growth numbers as well. So Constellation Software is a Russian doll of software groups, each layer having significant autonomy with extreme decentralization. Um, and so Constellation has nearly a thousand companies that it's a perpetual owner of, and each operate, it owns six operating groups, each owning hundreds of companies. And they manage business units, which will own tens of software businesses. 
which is what Lumen is. It's like a business unit, which has multiple companies underneath it. Um, Mark Leonard quote about working with the founder of Wide Orbit. We look forward, quote, we look forward working with Eric. Him and his team have built an extraordinary business over the last 20, 30 years. Um, blah, 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 blah. And he ends here with, I look forward to having Constellation's long-term shareholders become long-term shareholders of Lumine Group. I hope my grandkids are still holding shares 50 years from now, end quote. Gotta love it. Me and uh, your grandkids, Mark Leonard, will both be holding shares. Me and your grandkids. And I'm looking forward to how much money you'll make me along the way. Yeah, no, that's an interesting one. I know you're the uh, go-to for Constellation, so I'm not surprised that you were getting uh, a lot of questions. I mean, whenever we get some through our email, I'm usually, I send those over to you because, I mean, I know it through you, but that's the extent that I know Constellation software. But it's funny how they go to the venture, huh? Being they cheap, go to the venture because they're cheap, man. They go to che- <laughs> they're cheap and they don't want anyone to be able to they, – they don't want the investing public to know about the shares. They want to keep them cheap because the management team is required to buy shares. It is the most unique operating structure of incentives where if you are in the management team, director, your bonus – is actually tied to you have to take that money and buy shares on the public market at the same price that regular public shareholders like you and I can buy shares at. There's no stock-based compensation. They had they started with 21 million shares when they IPO'd, you know, 20 odd, 25 years ago, and they have never issued or bought back a share ever. It's still 21 million shares. And that share count available to the public keeps going down and down and down because there's more and more insider ownership because the executives and the management teams have to take their bonus and buy shares. So they don't want them to be too expensive. Um, it's such a strange incentive structure that just kind of works really well. Yeah, no, that's that's. I know you said that before, but it's always fascinating. <laughs> it's very unique. You will not find this out in the wild very often or ever. Yeah. Now we'll move on to some earnings. Uh, the first one is Teladoc, um, one that I own for how long? I'm not sure. We'll see. Um, <laughs> so I'll go over that reasoning. So I'll let people uh, listen to what I have to say first. So it was Q4 in their full year uh, earnings. So Q4 and full year revenues were up 15% and 18% respectively. Uh, full year revenues ended up at $2.4 billion. Access fee revenues were up 21% and other revenues, which includes visit fee only, was up 4%. For those not familiar, I have talked about Teladog before, but if you're a new listener, so access fees are when employers or insurers essentially pay the subscription fee to allow employees to use the service as they need, whereas visit fee is for individuals to pay on a visit-only basis. It's a small portion of their revenues compared to the access fee only. They had a $23.49 loss per share in Q4 and $84.60 loss per share for the year. So that was primarily driven by goodwill impairments, one earlier in this year for the Levongo acquisition, and now it's just laughable. They did another goodwill impairment or write-off of $3.7 billion in the quarter. Uh, free cash flow was down 87% to $16.5 million, so at least there's still uh, free cash flow positive. And in January, Teladoc laid off 6% of its workforce to put more emphasis on efficiency and improve profitability, which is not surprising. I mean, that's been a trend, especially in these, I guess it's a health play, but also a technology play. So it kind of aligns with uh, most of the industry here. Before I kind of give my thoughts, any comments before I give the guidance and uh, kind of where I'm at with uh, with that holding in my portfolio? Other than this was a f- what forty was it forty six billion in market cap at one point or something like that. It was. I don't know if it was that high, but it was at least yeah, like thirty or something like that. Yeah. And the uh, and the acquisition was nineteen for Livongo, I believe. I think so. I mean, it's been a couple of years now. So yeah, Livongo. Uh, they okay, let's but, just they overpaid. Yeah, they overpaid. I, I'm just I'm. While you're talking, I'm just looking it up. And so the run rate on the company was about four, 
a little over four hundred million uh, a year on Lavongo, and they paid nineteen. I I mean, of course, we can sit on the podcast and dunk on this acquisition till the cows come home, like we usually do. Uh, and and hindsight twenty twenty, it, it's insane. But uh, I, I'm just looking up these numbers because I I kind of have forgotten. And it doesn't help their case. The more I oh, look it into not. it, no, no. <laughs> um, so the guidance is where it really is disappointing here. So guidance for 2023, and I, I like to use the mid range, like you know, whatever brackets the mid range. I think it's always a good kind of starting point here. So revenues to increase eight percent to 2.6 billion, net loss per share of a dollar fifty, and adjusted EBITDA of 300 million. So. I'll talk a little bit about the, the guidance here as well. So the obviously improved profitability was a big part of the conference call, which I took the time to listen to because I've been on the fence now for Teladoc uh, for about a year. Um, I kind of had the approach, I'll wait and see with the whole Livongo acquisition, how it pans out. Obviously, management said they are focusing on more responsible growth approach, but basically putting more emphasis on growing while keeping expenses in check. And like I said, I've owned it for a while. I first bought it in 2017, so it's been more than five years. And I believe that at the time in the growth story, before the pandemic, they were growing at a pretty impressive clip. So from 2017 to 2019, revenues compounded at 33% a year. Growth was a combination of organic and acquisitions, usually pretty smaller kind of tuck-in acquisitions, which is a bit different from what they did, obviously, with Lavongo. Now, clearly, growth got supercharged during the pandemic and then they made the leave on go acquisition the back end of 2020 it looked expensive at the time we talked about it and now it looks like really a terrible mistake to be honest they sold the leave on go acquisition as a way to continue having strong growth by offering more and more services under their banner and integrating their chronic care from Livongo. so having this kind of unique offering that's how they were selling it but they just guided for 8% revenue growth. So to me, what would have justified at least in part the Livongo acquisition would be, look, you you have for several years, let's say like minimum 15%, but probably growth in the 20% plus range. Um, and there would have been no reason to not have some growth there, but also profitable growth. But the fact that it's 8%, um, that's, that's just not acceptable for me. And at this point, I'm probably going to be selling the remain of my position in Teladoc just because I just don't trust the management team anymore. And I did trim a big chunk of not a big chunk but a decent chunk of my position it was uh close to all-time high because i just felt like it was too big of a position for my portfolio was trading at pretty nosebleed multiples clearly i should have sold the whole thing but um yeah hindsight is 2020 and the last thing i'll say it's not all bad their balance sheet is pretty decent uh, they have 900 million in cash it's been slightly growing because of uh, them being free cash flow positive they do have one five 1.5 billion in convertible debt so it's not not too bad especially since it's convertible debt but um they're not on the brink or anything but i just i yeah i can't really justify owning teladoc anymore so that's why i'm most likely going to be selling it in the next few weeks but uh, for sure at some point in this quarter it's you know if you want eight percent top line growth go buy disney <laughs> you know yeah <laughs> if, if that's the number you want go own some stalwart um that is probably not going anywhere this is the problem with uh, you know lack of margin of safety combined with you know, the tide turning on the expectations for the actual business moving forward as well. Like that's like the recipe for disaster uh, in, in share price from the market is extreme expectations, no margin of safety, nosebleed valuation multiples and extreme deceleration on the top line. in just like a year or two equals value destruction. Um, and that's, kind of what happened here and here's the thing the and i'm sure you're aligned on this let me know how you're thinking about this as well is you're looking at this and for the most part you and i you have to rip the shares out of our hands as investors like we don't sell on you know bad news we sell on bad fundamentals or deteriorating investment thesis and 
it's a lot easier for me to say, screw it, I'm out on this thing when I no longer have a lot of conviction in the management team. That is when it's really easy for me to sell shares. Um, and that's when I recently sold a stock. That was the main thing was like, this is not living up to my expectations and neither is the management team, the way they talk, uh, how they've deployed capital over the last two years. It, I, I've lost a little bit of faith in that. And for this one, that definitely rings true from my perspective. How, how do you think about that? Oh, yeah. Like uh, losing faith in management is probably the death knell here. Like even, you know, it's not all bad. There's still, cre- you know, they're free cash flow positive. Like there are some positive things here. But um, yeah, it just it doesn't feel either like management is really taking ownership of this either. Um, and that's what I find disappointing. Like they nowhere during the call that I get the sense that it was a, you know, probably not the best idea to take ownership of it where they're just like still pumping the fact that they bought Livongo and how it's going to help the business going forward. I mean, I don't know. 8% is just, yeah, not there. But like you said, it's something I've been, you know, I've talked on the podcast pretty much for the past year. I said, I don't love where this is going. I'm going to take a step back, see how this year goes. I give management kind of, you know, a little bit of, uh, you know, benefit of the doubt. And clearly, I mean, they disappointed on that. So that's, you know, that's my opinion. If you do own shares, obviously make sure you don't necessarily sell just because I'm selling here. Make sure you do your own assessment. Uh, but that's where I stand for that company. Um, it wasn't, you know, overall, it's been a a pretty good bet for me just because I was uh, <laughs> astute like, enough to trim. We're not start. We're not having any uh, bake sales for you when you your your biggest loser is one you made a ton of money on that you sold most of your position already. <laughs> yeah, and right now it's around my cost basis, just a little lower. So, um, but doesn't yeah. matter. Even if it was half of my cost basis, if what I just said would have been true, I'd be selling as well. And I think yeah. that's important to remember for people because I know sometimes people just kind of wait to break even price yeah. anchoring. Um, so just keep that in mind. Yeah, good call. Price anchoring is has no place in investment management. No, no place in portfolio management does price anchoring fit into any strategy. It should be avoided at all costs. It is your brain playing tricks on you when it has no basis for reality moving forward with with returns. All right, let's talk about, where are we? Autodesk. Autodesk, ticker ADSK, a position I've owned for, gosh, I don't know, long time now. It's fiscal 2023 that they just reported. So um, full year 2023 numbers. Total revenue is $5 billion on the nose, an increase of 14%. Total billings increased 20% to $5.8 billion. It's a nice little leading indicator there. Operating margin of 36%. And as per usual, gross margins exceeding 90%, which have, you know, been rock solid at 91, 92 for about four-ish years since they finished uh, the SaaS transition. So two, three-ish years now. Um, now, if you look at the segments the architecture, engineering, and construction, their bread and butter was up 16%, uh, which was, you know, the best performing quarter, uh, segment, which is the best kind of news. When you have your like bread and butter and biggest segment is still growing at the fastest level, that's always really nice to see for any business and especially this one. That AutoCAD segment, good old AutoCAD still growing double digits at 11%, manufacturing at 12 and media and entertainment. At twelve percent, so double double digits across the board in their small other category, which has some optionality and some some uh, interesting uh, design and visualizations and, and gaming engine type integrations at up eighty seven percent. But it's small, so not real worth talking about just yet. That AutoCAD segment, dude. Oh my god, it just keeps like, is it the most successful software of all time? Let me answer that for you. Yes. Uh, $2 billion in free cash flow for the company, which has been the goal was around $2.4 billion, I think, that they set out in 2017 from the current CEO. Um, and 
the market was mad that like they didn't hit their goal like way back on free cash flow. I look at that the other way and it's like they laid out a path for free cash flow in a market that has not been focusing on profitability in that time frame at zero rates, grow at any cost. And they're off by 400 mil, but they're still generating $2 billion in free cash flow and $5 billion on the top line growing at nearly 20% and probably going to keep going double digits for quite a while still here. It was rough transitioning from their previous business model in 17, 18. So it's kind of nice now you're seeing the short-term pain that they laid out for the benefit of nice margins, recurring revenues, and cash flows. If you look at their recurring revenue base, which we do track on Stratosphere and their KPIs, you'll see their recurring revenue base is now nearly $5 billion a year, growing mid-teens year over year. And the subscription base has nicely exceeded over 6 million active subscribers. Um, Nothing really to add here. I mean, like the market... Mark this thing down again. Uh, so it's never been a cheap stock, but it has gotten cheaper and cheaper over time. I'm thinking about adding to it here, even though it still feels expensive. Companies like this always feel expensive. We're talking about one of the most sticky software businesses in the history of software businesses. Yeah, no, definitely looks, uh, I mean, still expensive, like you said, but definitely looks like it's coming down a bit. And if you believe in the long-term growth and trajectory of the business, obviously this could be a, a pretty interesting play. I mean, I know the AutoCAD software really well, just because I think I mentioned it before my dad was in architecture. Yep. So I remember when I was a kid where you actually needed like a special square mouse and a, pa uh, it, I'm trying to explain that, but it was like, it had like forms on it. It was this like, a rectangular, probably like a large book size kind of size. And then you'd bring that special mouse on it and click whichever kind of form you needed. And then you start drawing the plans with that. Yeah, exactly. And so there's that stickiness on like skilled labor, like your dad. But there's also I, the, I do believe the narrative that, it, uh, you know, increased competition will, will come for this. And I, I wholeheartedly agree. I mean, you, whenever you have margins like that in a very important industry like architecture, engineering, and construction, massive total adjustable market, ridiculous margins, you know, there's always going to be more and more competition. And I think that that's a fair point. But what is a little bit overblown is I'm an, I'm an engineer. I still talk to my buddies who are in engineering. I'm always checking up on this stuff, you know, getting their opinion on if anything's changing, you know, what are the upstarts? And I've got them to even show me demos of their competitors. And I'm, and my buddy was showing me this really cool 3D visualization software for this new big tower they're working on in Toronto. And he's like, yeah, and I just bring this file in and then it'll load up. And I was like, hold on, can you go back a few few steps there? And he was bringing in an Autodesk file into the the competitor's uh, stack. And so I was like, so Autodesk is still obviously involved in this process. They're, they're being built on top of. And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, okay, well, what about, could, could there be a different file input that replaces it? And he's like, basically no, because no chance the architect is going to switch. Like, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, it's too big of a barrier, uh, too big of a switching cost. And so there are many things happening outside and adjacent, but they seem to still be operating on the rails of Autodesk. If that changes, I'm willing to change my mind. But right now, uh, this is the, this is why you, you buy and hold and you verify. You verify the thesis, you verify the thesis. And you keep verifying the thesis as long as you're a shareholder. Yeah, and I, I'm not an expert with AutoCAD or anything, but 
you know, it's a more advanced, like it's a software for some pretty technical professions too, right? So it's not like, it's not something where you're necessarily like designing like Photoshop or something like that, which, you know, you know, requires, don't get me wrong, does require some getting used to the software and some technical knowledge as well. But, you know, people go to school for several years to do these professions and usually they will in school learn how to use these software as well. So just the training that would be required if you're a business to train your architect or whichever workflow uses that, um, I can just imagine the training costs, how high it would be. And there could also be some pushback from the employees, right? They may just not want to learn something new too. Yeah. And mastery here is on a different scale, right? Like the Photoshop example, yeah, mastery can probably be achieved in months to years. Mastery on these types of tools are in the decades. And and that's a material difference uh, career-wise in terms of stickiness. Yeah, no, well put. Now we'll move on to, um, you know... Might as well talk us about some other not great management. Uh, so Intel <laughs> <laughs> slashed its dividend, which was kind of obvious that they needed to do that. They cut it by 65% from uh, 36 cents uh, 0.5 per share to 12.5 cents per share. Um, you actually texted me the morning of like, oh, here it is, like the dividend cut. And honestly, it was the right move, but the timing was definitely odd to say the least, and here's what I mean. So management got asked about the dividend during their earnings call on January 26. An analyst asked management about the current level of the dividend and if management and the board were considering keeping it at that current level or looking at reducing or increasing it. So the current level was 36 and a half cents per share. Here's what the CFO responded. The the best like politician non-answer that you can <laughs> you can kind of get. Yes, well, obviously we announced 36 and a half cent dividend for the first quarter. That was consistent with the last quarter's dividend. I just say the board management, we take a very disciplined approach to the capital allocation strategy and we're going to remain committed to being very prudent around how we allocate capitals for the owners. And we are committed to maintaining a competitive dividend. What the hell? Like, a competitive dividend. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And I mean, go ahead. If you uh, want to listen to the call, those comments and the question were right around the 53-minute mark. Um, so I wanted, you know, just to, because it, it obviously when you look at it and, it, sorry, when you listen to it and the tone um, you'll understand the CFO was very hesitant, didn't seem like almost sure. It's almost like he was trying to hide something and clearly, you know, in hindsight. Like, Hold on, let me just flip to my notes because I knew this question was coming. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And to me, honestly, this is just a big red warning sign about that management team because, you know, the smart thing to do, which they did not do, they had a terrible quarter and it was a bad year for Intel. Anyone who listened and looked at their earnings can tell you that. So when you have a bad year and quarter and your guidance is not good, it was not good either, why would you delay this kind of move a month? Just rip off the Band-Aid. You know, it's not going to affect your stock even more. People will actually probably commend you for cutting the dividend because that's the smart thing to do. And honestly, right now, looking at that, and the transformation that Intel is trying to do, I just don't understand why they even cut, they even kept the dividend. Like, I would say, like, if I was in their situation, I would cut the whole thing and say, look, we'll reevaluate it on a year to year basis. But right now, our priority is to gaining back some market share that we lost and making sure that our turnaround plan is properly funded. It just, it does not make sense. Oh, that's just my honest opinion there. I wholeheartedly agree with your opinion. And this is the difference between executives who are, it's all incentive structures. You just follow the money. It is so simple. If you look at the incentive structure here, the last thing these executives of Intel, a you know, large American corporation, they're collecting their gigantic paychecks. And the last thing they want to do is see the value of their shares go down 
and they're acting in the short term versus being owners for permanent capital for investors. Align your portfolio to people who are managing permanent capital for their shareholders and focused on the long-term story. This is a turnaround story. Hopefully, that's what investors should be hoping for, not collecting that big, fat, juicy dividend that was going to get cut. If it didn't, they were going straight into bankruptcy. So you knew they were going to be cutting it, and they cut it 65%, which is as obvious as the sun coming up tomorrow. So I I saw a lot on Twitter, these Facebook groups that I try to promote Stratosphere on, uh, people, look at the dividend of Intel. I'm buying shares. I want this juicy, fat dividend. And I'm just like, oh my, this is such amateur hour. Don't fall for this trap. If I was running this company and I was the sole owner, yes, no more dividend. Take it to the woodshed. This is a turnaround story. The government of the U.S. wants nothing more than them to succeed. I mean, if you're you're bullish on this company, you're like, they're not going to let Intel fail. Because they need, they need fab on U.S. soil. <laughs> what better is it than the U.S. government is the biggest proponent of wanting you to succeed? Uh, so, dude, I would so run for the hills on this story. It's a tire fire. Yeah, and I think they they also need to pick a lane. Um, I think yeah. trying to be an integrated uh, semiconductor company, um, it worked in the 1990s and the early 2000s, but clearly has not been the best strategy in the last decade or so. So, I mean, you know, they're trying to to do both things, but I, you know, maybe they should just look at being a fab, try to competing with, uh, you know, Taiwan Semiconductor and leverage the U.S. government because the U.S. government will probably, you know, in being, they'll probably be more favorable to Intel over Taiwan Semiconductors, even if TSMC starts opening fabs in the U.S., which they will be. I'm sure the U.S. government would be very happy to help out Intel at opening more fabs and by doing so and just kind of you know not doing the whole chip design business anymore and producing their own chips but producing chips for an AMD and Nvidia if they become and ha- they have advanced enough fabs eventually you know it could be a good business model and they would attract those customers cuz those customers would not be afraid of Intel actually stealing their technology which is the case right now Intel can say what they want they said they're doing some you know they're actually progressing on that front having some uh, commitments for using their fabs but it's always going to be a very difficult thing for them to do because the chip designers will just be very reluctant to go for them they'll go for a TSMC where they just produce it. That's it. They're not afraid of those designs being stolen. The writing has been on the wall for this industry that the designers and the uh, pure play fab is the way to run this business and integrated is not the way to do it. The writing's been on the wall now for, what, maybe 10 years is that yeah, I would much? say it probably started shifting around that. I mean, yeah. what really helped TSMC is um, competition started cutting costs around the great financial crisis, and they kind of bucked the trend, and they continued investing. Right. And that's where they really, really gained uh, market share. That was around that time. So I would say, yeah, probably around a decade um, was a turning point for that. Let's talk about GFL. Uh, full year. The big green machine reported earnings and uh, total revenues came in at $6.76 billion, an increase of 31.6%. So they continue to just really kind of impress on the top line and especially this organic line item. Organic revenue growth was up 13.6%. I think if you're going to take anything from this report, that is the bullish case uh, that they're able to kind of flex pricing power in this way. I think this is the most impressive metric from uh from the from the report. And hence Simon, why it sits at the very top of <laughs> of every report, every messaging, every press release, every presentation. Uh they they opened with that. And and as they should. I mean it's a it's a seriously impressive number for uh solid waste. 
adjusted EBITDA of $1.7 billion, an increase of 22%. Now, that sounds pretty good. It sounds sounds all very good. Now, here's here's where I'm going to take a turn on this. I'm a shareholder, okay? I'm a shareholder. I got to be honest. I, I own this business in my portfolio, and still for the life of me, every time I look into the results, I get so damn confused. Their adjustments are... And you're smiling, grin. You're 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 grinning ear to ear right now because you know this. The bear case is yes, it's too highly leveraged. That's been the bear case the whole time. How about I add? You got to be a financial auditor to go through these statements and make it make sense. After all, Charlie Munger famously quoted saying, "Every time you see adjusted EBITDA, replace that with bullshit earnings." <laughs> <laughs> you know, he, he has no uh, problem calling it like he sees it. Honestly, like how often do we talk about this? If you're going to own something, you got to be able to understand it well. Mm-hmm. And I'm doing some self-reflection here live on the podcast because every quarter I have to go to the footnotes and really like dig into those adjustments. And their competitors are not like waste management numbers and, and, uh, waste connections are like so gap profitable. Uh, and so it, you know, ding, 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 right? Like these should be some red flags. That's all I'm going to say. Nonetheless, the growth story here continues to be impressive. Their aggressive land and land and expand in the waste management business, both organically and through acquisitions is very impressive. They flex some pricing power and they closed 20. No, they closed 40 acquisitions in 2022 which is a, a ton. They spun out the infrastructure business, which I think was smart, and some of the non-core assets. So that generated about $360 million in cash to really focus on the solid waste management business. I think this is the right move. The solid waste management business is still hyper-mega-fragmented. It's more than 50% private, even though you have these giants like Waste Connections, GFL, and Waste Management rolling it up in North America. They're guiding for about 11% top line and 700 million in adjusted free cash flow, whatever that means. Interest expense is something you got to look at. Well, how do you how do you adjust for free cash flow? That's my question. This is what I'm talking about. You got to go <laughs> to the footnotes. And the problem yeah. is, is that I'm having to look every single time because I still like, I have to, I forget like, you know, or like it changes like, I don't love that. I, I've never loved that. And no. I, I think I, I'm just being more critical of um, with self-reflection. I think this is part of growing as an investor and, and realizing, you know, you, you and I come on this pod. We, we learn a ton by doing lots of research. And you got to know what you own. And, and maybe I don't know enough. Maybe I'm not a financial auditor to be able to look through these statements every time. Regardless, um, the asset sales and the growth give this the chance of really ripping higher if, if they can contain those interest expenses. Um, the, the, the bear case, and I'm, I'm taking my own, my own medicine here is the, reading these, this report is like financial gymnastics where you go from gap losses to 440 million in adjusted EBITDA. <laughs> you know, like, uh, so, Given that mentally, I'm not selling my shares. You know, I don't do anything rash. I, I don't, I'm confused. I'm going to sell it, but it is mentally on a short leash, uh, upon some self reflection and my ability to understand it and my desire to understand it in the future is, is waning. Yeah, I mean, that adjusted, those adjusted metrics. That's the issue with the adjusted metrics is a company will, Company A will have adjusted EBITDA. Company B will have adjusted EBITDA, and they'll be different um, the way they calculate it. And that's the problem, right? When you have GAAP or IFRS uh, for Canadian listed companies is there's a set of 
accounting principles that they have to follow. That's why, you know, you can rely on those. Clearly, there's limitations uh, with Berkshire. That's always a good example because they'll have like either massive loss or massive profit just based on the value of their investments. So there's definitely limitations to that. But there's things you can look at, right? You can look at stock-based compensation when even, you know, without looking at these adjusted metrics, you can look at free cash flow, uh, you can look at actual net income and make a better picture of what's actually happening with the company, obviously looking at the balance sheet as well. Um, I'm with you, the adjusted metrics, I mean, sometimes it makes sense, but it seems like, my God, like so many companies actually use that now. Um, the, the one I do like and and again, you have to make sure you look at how they calculated. But for REITs, I like the adjusted funds from operation. It's actually a harsher metric in most cases than the funds from operations. So um, just, yeah, I think it's important for people to look at that and, you know, not just looking at the top lines saying, oh, well, adjusted, you know, you beat up 440 million. Everything's going well. You have to actually look at what's going on. That's right. And and to be honest with yourself as an investor is, do you care to figure out what's going on? Because there's, there are so many investment ideas that you can own and understand and have conviction in for a long time and not have to do financial gymnastics to get from negative gap EPS to huge hundreds of millions of dollars in adjusted profits. Like, you know what I'm saying? Dude, I'm on, uh, I'm on a hilarious blog post right now. Because I'm looking up Patrick Davidji, the the founder and CEO. The founder, uh, yeah. He has a ninety million dollar yacht, and I think he's trying to sell it now or something. Oh, <laughs> never, never trust, never trust a, a guy with a ninety million dollar yacht trying to make you money as a shareholder. Never trust that. This blog post is hilarious because it says the one enjoying this stunning super yacht is allegedly Patrick Davidji a Canadian billionaire mostly known for being a former hockey goalkeeper. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't even play one game in the NHL. I think he had a cup of coffee for a couple practices for the Edmonton Oilers. That is hilarious. His money, obviously, is from GFL. This is brilliant. I love the internet. Okay, yeah, I guess the last thing, this will be a quick one, um, just because it's a name I know a lot of people follow in Canada, so that came out, their earnings came out a few weeks ago, uh, Nutrien, they released Q4 in full year, it's in US dollars because they're traded on both the Canadian and the US uh, stock market, sales were up 37% to $38 billion. cost of goods sold only went up 24%, which is a good sign here compared to sales, net income was up 142% to 7.5%. 0.7 billion earnings per share was up 157% to $14.18 and all segments were up for the year with the exception of merchandise and services which were flat uh, they're also two of their smallest segments now I'm not going to touch too much on the guidance here just because it's so tricky. I mean, you can't really fault management. They do try to offer some guidance, but what tends to happen is every quarter they kind of revise it a little bit because it's so dependent on the price of commodities and Obviously, like we saw last year, it's also dependent on what's happening on a geopolitical basis, due in part by the Russia-Ukraine war. War will, you know, it will definitely increase the production and therefore require nitrogen and potash. And Russia, well, I think it was Ukraine that's uh, was a big exporter. Russia as well, actually. Uh, so it's going to be potential tailwind here for Nutrien as long as, unfortunately, this war kind of drags on. On. And prices for potash and potash and nitrogen have gone down in recent months, but they believe that supply constraint, like I just mentioned, and low inventory levels from growers should be a tailwind uh, in the coming years. And again, I won't go over the guidance just because it's so tricky. Um, if there, it is a name you're interested in, just be aware that it will be very dependent on the price of the commodities here. And I mean, I do like it as a commodity play, a commodity play though, because people have to eat. Our population worldwide is increasing, and there are not that many companies that produce what Nutrien actually produces, which is um, potash and nitrogen are the two main things that they produce. It's funny, you know, every time we talk about commodity, 
businesses. It's the same old song and dance. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go there. No, yeah. But what I what I will say is there are a few that are superstars and just absolute studs in terms of the way they operate, that what they sell, it being so just so core, um, the amount of cash flow they're spinning off, and just the the competitive landscape being really not that intense. Um, this is a gem. This is one of the good ones. Yeah, people from Saskatchewan uh, really love you now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to score points with the the people from Saskatchewan. So uh, you're welcome. <laughs> uh, no, I'm serious though. Like there are some gems, and I'm so harsh on my. No, I'm not harsh. I'm just honest about how I do not want to own any commodity plays because I can't predict the future, and no one can. But there are really good assets and really good operators, and there are some not so good ones in the mix. And just own the high quality ones. Like it's really, it seems ridiculous. It seems simplified, but it's not that hard to identify the high quality assets and the and the poor ones just by simply looking at uh, you know the three financial statements. It doesn't take a absolute financial genius you, you need to be more of a financial genius to go from negative gap losses to 440 million in adjusted EBITDA. exactly yeah <laughs> no and they they generate even when the prices are lowered they will generate some free cash flow it's going to vary um so i think and they're they've always paid a decent dividend obviously they they had that merger i think it was what five years ago now five six years ago the old agrium and potash yeah. corp Potash, yeah. So that really, um, but just looking at Stratosphere, it was like, who was it? I think it was around there. I think I was in uh, like, um, is twenty eighteen, but January forming merge complete. They completed the merger on January second, twenty eighteen. So yeah, it was a it was a twenty seventeen story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they they produce free cash flow. I mean, it's just gonna range. That's it. Uh, depending on the price. Yeah. Apparently, the merger is actually announced in September of 16. Oh, okay. Jeez, time. F- that is not. That's a bit yeah. scary. That feels like two years ago in my mind. Uh, time flies. Uh, thanks so much for listening to the podcast, folks. If you have not given us a rating, especially if you're on Apple Podcasts, it takes four seconds. You just scroll down on the, the episode and then there'll be like five stars there. And then a, there's also a little icon where you can press write a review. It's in purple writing. So you just click write a review, smash the five stars, and then leave us something. We've gotten so many in February. And we noticed that it uh, kind of moves the needle for us. And and this podcast is completely free. You come here, you listen twice a week. We do all this research. All we ask is for to seven seconds of your time with hammering that review button on the podcast player yeah yeah until we get that joe rogan deal with spotify we yeah (laughs) until we get the joe rogan deal uh we need you apple podcast listeners no but the spotify listeners also can hit that rating button and uh it, it helps us a lot we'll see in a few days if you're new here this episode's come out mondays and thursdays we'll see in a few days take care bye The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.